Hello, welcome to Charity Chats. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Philip Kirkpatrick about his work as a solicitor for the charity sector. We speak about the current charity governance model and the pros and cons of this, as well as a possible alternative. The challenges of trustees and charities recruiting them have been discussed on this podcast before, but in today's episode, we will, for the first time, explore some of the legal implications for trustees and ask the question, is there a better way for charities to run, to ensure effective charity governance and drive forward a new era of charity impact? This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. So without further ado, here is Philip Kirkpatrick speaking with me about an alternative to the charity governance model. I'm delighted to be joined by Philip Kirkpatrick, partner and head of the charity and social enterprise department at Bateswells. Welcome, Philip, to Charity Chat. Hello, Samuel. Thanks very much. And hello, everyone. So, Philip, what if we can start by uh, just talking about what your background is and how did you get into the charity sector? Sure, sure. Uh, well, I- I'm a solicitor. I-, I started, I've been doing this work advising charities and, and social enterprises and non-profits and other kind of public entities for about the last 25 years. And I got into it, really, because when I was studying, I came across uh, this amazing law firm called Bates Wells that just acted for those kinds of clients. And I had a it had a distinct ethos and a way of practicing law. And I just thought, wow, that, that's what I want to do, um, not having thought about it before. Uh, and I was just lucky enough to get one of the three places on offer. And I mean, I've been there ever since. Had you been involved in charity work before? joining Bateswells in, in terms of volunteering or anything like that? I'd worked within um, uh, an amnesty group, uh, but that was about the uh, the long and the short of it. Uh, my wife had been much more involved in it than I had. Um, so I had an interest, but not really um, doing enough, frankly. And and so that was, was that a kind of a key motivator for you was kind of ultimate, kind of was an idealistic side of it, trying to make the world a little bit better is that is that a, a good way of kind of quantifying it? yeah I would say that I'd say that is right uh, it's it's something that's motivated me throughout my career it's it's something that I was always interested in and have been guided towards really uh, by a number of people What's been your your specifically? What's been your experience of charity governance and the trustee board structure? Uh, it's the current model that we're talking about today of, of charity boards um, and used throughout the UK. And how is it supposed to work? Yeah, uh, I mean the typical the standard model, I suppose, for a, a sizable operating charity is that you've got a, a part time group of volunteer trustees who've got varying expertise and and knowledge and um, different levels of engagement and they're supposed to oversee an executive that gets on and and runs the charity because it's not necessarily the most obvious way of of running something that you know you put in charge of it Uh, people who meet very very occasionally maybe once a quarter uh, and more often in, in some they know less about it than the people who are actually running it uh, and they're totally responsible for it uh, it's 
it's an odd when you think about it it's sort of it, it seems odd even though it's the standard thing and it's worked for for generations i suppose it sounds like it's a lot of responsibility i suppose obviously on the podcast we've spoken a lot about trustees and about kind of what good trustees look like and who could be a, a good trustee and i think we've had we've spoken to a lot of trustees but it's mm. uh, it sounds like it could be um on the one hand it, it sounds like it's a great opportunity to to give back is also it's largely voluntary and and so giving back to a cause that um, maybe you're, you might be a beneficiary of, of a charity and then you want to give back and you want to represent the beneficiaries of the charity on the board to help guide the the strategy and the direction of the the charity but, uh, but as you say there, there's a there's an awful lot going on in even a smaller charity I yeah, I mean, I think people do get involved in, uh, in in charity trusteeship for all sorts of reasons. Mm. You know, sometimes it is that, you know, you have a very personal connection with the um, with the issue. It might be that, you know, it's a charity that deals with a particular medical condition that someone in your family has or mm. um, that something's happened to you that, and, and you want to support that cause or it's just a cause that you just feel feel strongly about. Or sometimes you just get... Uh, tapped on the shoulder and 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 you realize it's your turn to to do something and give something back to society i think people come into it for lots and lots of reasons and i think people get out of it uh, a huge amount but i'm not sure that most people coming into charity trusteeship really appreciate what now seems to be expected of them as charity mm-hmm. trustees um there there is i think most people probably um think of it primarily in terms of their ability to to do something that gives back uh, i think in relation to a, a kind of charity that has you know it's big enough to have an executive team they probably think of their role as really predominantly support and advice to the to the executive and mm. giving some strategic guidance and so on um you know and they'll be involved of obviously in creation of strategy and agreement of budgets and things like that but they're probably not driving initiating those things that they're, they're, they're probably inputting into them and agreeing them but actually it seems to me that that what is now demanded of trustees Maybe it was always expected of trustees, but I don't think the regulatory environment was such that trustees really uh, seemed to be very much in the firing line, very much the target aimed at when anything goes wrong. And mm. I think we've just seen that big time uh, in the uh, in the recent regulatory uh, cases that have been going through in different and not well in all sorts of so-called scandals in relation to charities and the way in which regulators and public authorities have have dealt with them. So, I mean, things that really, what really set me thinking about a new model really was thinking about cases like uh, Oxfam and the criticism given to the charity trustees who were, it seemed to me, were expected to know um, absolutely everything about what had gone on. in one of their operations in Haiti, um, or you know, the large fundraising charities that, where their chairs were hauled in front of the the um, public accounts committee, uh, and you know, with demands to know about how their fundraising operation was organised in detail, mm-hmm. you know, forgetting that each of those charities has an entire fundraising team headed by a fundraising director, sure, and things like you know, the official receiver um, bringing proceedings against the trustees. Of of kids company you know i don't think mm. most trustees going into it sort of had the sense 
that they were very much in the firing line. And, uh, you know, they, I guess they're told they're ultimately responsible for what goes on in the charity. Mm. But I don't quite see how with um, volunteer trustees who are there on a very, very part-time basis and have um, an executive that actually runs the charity, how they can really know in the detail that seems to be required what is really going on. And therefore, how can they genuinely be responsible for it? So that was my, that's really what my anxiety is about the current model, although I'm sure the current model works perfectly well in most situations. When we're talking about the likes of a kids' company, for example, it's such a big charity in comparison to to most of, of the registered charities in the UK, I think it's something like 96%. I should know this by now because we've said this so many times. But it's in the region of 90-something percent of charities are, are raising less than £500,000 a year. But, of course, mm. Kids Company you know, is one of those kind of part of a much smaller group, which is raising a lot more. Is it because they're, they're more focused, there's more focus on them from, in terms of the public eye and that, that's, that then adds to it another level of pressure and scrutiny for trustees that might um, make a case for having a, a different system for large charities? Well, that's interesting. I think it's a really insightful comment. I never really thought about whether it was because of the public profile of these charities that there was potentially a problem. But I think you have hit on something there, Samuel. Yeah, I mean, if you think of all the charities I've just named who've been kind of hauled over the coals in one way or another, uh, they were in the public eye. They were in the, 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 in the middle of a media... Um, a media storm. I, I mean, I don't think that that makes them any different in the sense of what the trustees' responsibilities are mm. uh, and the extent to which trustees ought to be held to account for what happens in the charity. But it does mean, I suppose, that uh, when something goes wrong, it goes wrong in a very public way, which attracts the attention of regulators, parliamentarians, the press, uh, and there very often is a, a wholly unreasonable baying for blood, which I don't think most trustees really ever thought they were signing up for. On the one hand, and we've been talking about this on Charity Chat for, for some time now, we've been interviewing the likes of Deborah Alcock-Tyler and various others about yeah. the role of the trustee, and we've, we've talked about it in terms of you know really how vital it is that People yeah. come in with their eyes open, but actually you know, take this forward. There's so many charities out there that are looking for trustees all the time. There seems to be a, a lack of enough people uh, willing to, to take it on. And I suppose things like the kids' company and other things in the, in the press, there's, I suppose, a real risk that's going to put people off of, of becoming trustees and taking on that vital role. Yes, well, I mean, I agree with you, and I know that Deborah agrees with with, with me that you know it was actually vital that we managed to um, persuade the court that um, the trustees of Kids Company were not unfit, and in fact, far from being unfit, uh, you know, the judge said that you know any any charity or you know would be proud to have them on their on their board. Mm. Um, you know, these were people taking honest decisions in very difficult circumstances uh, and certainly weren't expecting to be um, uh, hauled over the coals in the most appalling way I've, I've seen uh, trustees hauled over the coals. I mean, I don't know if I'm, uh, we mentioned this, but I, mean, I was acting for five of those trustees in that case. And yeah, I mean, certainly a point I, I made throughout 
was that merely bringing these, this case uh, would damage the trust of people in their ability and willingness to become trustees. Mm. It would make trusteeship more difficult uh, for those who, who thought about it carefully and who, who knew about the issues. Um, and I know, I know of people who have terminated their trusteeships, and I know of people who have um, weighed up very carefully and sometimes decided not to take up trusteeships because of this sort of um, this case and and the potential for um, for difficulties for them, especially given the the role. The role is a part time role, as I said, where you you can't fully know what is going on. Mm. Yet when things go wrong, even if you've done your best, uh, you're you're being challenged. And you know, in the case of Kids Company, there was a solicitor on the board, there was an accountant on the board. And had they been disqualified, they probably wouldn't have been able to um, continue with their professional lives. Well, These are risks that are not that they're not unreal minor risks. Mm. So uh, I do think it has that the case, even though it has been won, has been very damaging to the principle of charity trusteeship. And I, I find that very depressing. I've been a champion of trusteeship. Uh, we even I was even involved in setting up Trustees Unlimited, which promotes charity trusteeship, mm. uh, tries to get charity trustees onto boards. But I, I've just been very depressed about about the regulatory environment of probably the last five to seven years within the sector. Do you have hope that with the change of leadership in terms of the chair of the charity commissions obviously changing now, is there any hope that things that we we can kind of, we can close the book on, on the, the, difficulties that trustees have had recently with all of this reporting um, and these different cases that have been uh, that have come up into the public eye especially and mm. and that maybe there, there can be some uh, moving forward in terms of finding a better way of managing the risks for trustees in the future I think there are some uh, some things that can be laid at the door of of Baroness Stoll as the recently left chair of the commission but I think I mean, she had a particular view of, of, of how charities should be responding um, to the public mood that I, I don't agree with. And I think that did have an impact on the way in which there was uh, some regulation was, was undertaken within the commission. But, you know, the commission is a, um, it, you know, it goes well beyond the, the, the chair. Mm. Uh, and also, I think that that thrust of the commission had begun before um, Baroness Stoll became the chair. Her predecessor was um, not entirely dissimilar, um, perhaps a bit less vocal about it. But the commission comes up, you've got to remember that the commission has to respond to mm. the kind of public pressure that comes on it. It's very difficult for an organisation, even if it's sort of quasi-independent, you know, not exactly a government department. It comes under immense pressure from uh, from the government of the day, and it comes under immense pressure from backbenchers and from um, and from the press, mm. and it responds to that pressure. It has responded to that pressure in the way it has thought most likely to lead to trust and confidence being protected and preserved in the sector. Mm. I haven't always agreed with the commission's approach on that. Um, whether I'm right or they're right, I. I mean, who will know? <laughs> and I'm sure people. I'm sure people will take different views on it. 
obviously there's this existing system that most um, charities and non-profits are using in terms of a, a, a governance board of volunteers who are meeting, it, um, as you say, usually quarterly or maybe more frequently than that, making these decisions. And of course, they are delegating day-to-day responsibilities to an executive in a lot of cases mm. and, and paid staff, but they themselves aren't paid. And we're talking about this uh, this other idea, this, this uh, alternative model for charity governance, um, which I think you've called assured unitary governance. That's right. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how this would work differently to the current model and what improvement it could potentially make? I might start by saying I'm not promising any improvement, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so, um, there might be improvement and, and it'd be interesting to debate that. Uh, the, the, the real genesis of it is my sense that the current system, especially in the large operating charities, which is where I kind of, I was thinking about, I mean, I, I happened to be, at the time I was thinking about it, happened to be involved in a, another charity commission inquiry into a large mm-hmm. charity and just sort of thinking how unfair this was and thinking what these why are these trustees in this situation and what what could we do differently uh, and you know obviously I had Oxfam and um, and the public affairs committee mm-hmm. accounts committee in my in my mind and so on and kids company I just thought the whole system is unfair on trustees for these kinds of charity but that doesn't mean that this model would only work for these kinds of charities. I think it could work for any kind of charity that has a significant paid executive, really, but that tends to be the larger charities. Um, and the idea was, well, if trustees really have signed up to that support and advice role, that oversight role, uh, without really promising that they know everything that's going on and without really promising that they're expecting to be fully liable and um, in the firing line when uh, when things do go wrong because things do go wrong people make mistakes uh if they haven't really signed up for that what have they signed up for and it is i think the giving something back giving to the charity their expertise their knowledge and and their support so how might those people do it uh, and the other side of it was really the, the definition of a charity trustee in the Charities Act is the, the people who have the general control of the management and administration of the charity. And I thought to myself, well, you know what? If you've ever had the general management and control of anything, you know it's a pretty full-time job. Sure. And yet we give it to these part-time people and tell them they're responsible. So in reality, we also know that the people who generally do control charities with paid executives are the paid executives and and we even put the word director in most of their titles you know you've got a director of finance a director of fundraising and yet when they're limited companies we're we're also claiming they're not directors of the company in company law so why don't why not just be honest about it and say these are the people who really ought to be the trustees they really ought to be the people who have general control and management of management and administration and who are responsible to us all as the public for delivery of that and therefore let's call them the trustees Mm. Uh, so you have your ceo your finance director your head of fundraising perhaps your head of care if it's a a care organization the kind of core senior management team group Mm -hmm. and you say right you're going to be directors of the company you're going to be charity trustees And we're going to put on probably a couple of um, independent uh, people, maybe a chair who will be independent and uh, not um, executive. Mm -hmm. And 
perhaps another what I've called a senior independent trustee or a sit who will also <laughs> sit on the board. Um, <laughs> and uh, in that way, I guess what I've just described is the kind of board that runs most of our public companies. Mm-hmm. It's a unitary board in which you've got executive and non-executive directors um, working together. Mm-hmm. And, and, and very often, you know, you will have, I mean, and the, the difference, I guess, in mine, my proposal is that the chair would generally be a non-executive, whereas in a, um, a commercial company might, well, you know, there, there'll be a different, there'll be a different arrangement, different arrangements. Um, but I don't think it works for a charity to have just a unitary board like that with a majority in that situation of executive trustees. Uh, and I think you then what you, you want to do is give some assurance to that unitary board mm. by taking the people who would otherwise be the, the trustees taking them out from the trustee board and putting them into what I've called an assurance board. And that assurance board would have certain um, important functions. They would act like and probably be part of or maybe be the membership of the charity. So you'd have the members of the charity and the board of the charity. Mm -hmm. Um, So they might be the whole membership or they might be a subset of the membership. And they would have these crucial powers to to appoint the board, to remove the board, to authorise payments to the paid members of the board, because, of course, some of them would be employees, just like in a normal company, um, to kind of receive the annual reports, to manage conflicts of interest. So that would be the sort of assurance, a really important assurance role. But in addition, they would be reviewing budgets and reviewing strategy and providing their expert advice on those things and supporting the board of responsible trustees to do those, but not actually taking the decisions. As soon as you take the decisions on those, as soon as you're, you take responsibility for the, the budget, the strategy and so on, you become a director, you become a trustee. So leave, leaving it at the advice and support stage. So the way I see them is, is like a super engaged membership. Uh, almost um, like engaged investors in a company. They don't want to be on the board, but they want to have a big say in what happens without taking responsibility for it. And in that way, I think a lot of people who, uh, and this won't be for everyone, but people can come on to an assurance board and give to the charity what they hoped that they were going to be giving to the charity without being responsible for everything that goes on. And I think there is a corollary to that, which is that those who are actually running the charity, the executive and the and the non-executive, perhaps are more engaged and more frequently meeting non-executive board members, the chair and, and the sit, mm. they would have greater responsibilities. And the fact that they were paid would mean that the courts would hold them to a, a very high standard uh, if, when things do go wrong. So there is a, you know, being a a paid director is rather different from being a non-executive unpaid director, whether that's for a charity or a commercial company, in relation to the you know what a court expects from you in delivering your role. So that's a kind of rough outline of, of where it is. And I, I think it could work for, for many organisations. It won't work for everyone. And there are probably good parts about the, that form of governance and probably bad parts about that form of governance. And it's sort of 
it comes from a uh, what I one thing I had in mind was the 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 way in which German public companies Stichtings have a two tier board structure. Well, they have the operating board, and above that, they have what's called a supervisory board, which has a number of people on it, which include employee representatives and so on. And I was thinking about that kind of model, but that kind of model doesn't really work in English law because the members of a supervisory board would become directors in, in English law, and they would become charity trustees in English law. So I was trying to create a board which wasn't exactly supervisory, but which was doing some of the things that a supervisory board might do without imposing liability on the on the directors. So sort of taking elements of the way in which you manage commercial companies in the UK and Germany and try to fit that to a non-profit charity model. Sounds like a very interesting possible solution for some, because I guess the nub of it is that it's sharing out a bit more responsibility between those who are currently coming on as unpaid trustees and those that work in these organisations. And I guess that there might be, I suppose, there'd be pros and cons to it from both sides. But I can imagine, as myself, kind of in a senior um, role in, in a smaller charity, I can imagine the idea of actually being more involved with the the board and, and the workings of the, the trustees might be quite a, um, something that I would be interested in doing. And similarly, there might be uh, trustees that I've known in the past who would be willing or wanting to take a bit more interest in the the operations of some of mm. the work. So I suppose it could it could work both ways. Well, I think it's, it's in, in a way, if you think about it, it's a little bit bizarre to run an organisation in the way we do run them. There are bizarre elements to it. Uh, so, I mean, the typical board will have the chief executive and the trustees, the board of a charity, the chief executive and the trustees attending all the board meetings and the chief executive very much engaging in board and the whole board process. Uh, But other key directors will probably only attend those broader board meeting that are relevant to their functions. But then you'll have a senior management team, which then goes away and meets together to discuss all of the functions together. Sure. I'm not really sure what the benefit of having the board consider these things separately and without the expertise of all Mm. and then the senior management team considering them separately with the expertise of all when the reality is that organizations don't exist in silos of fundraising care publishing finance whatever all of these things contribute to the whole and you need your senior decision makers your senior management team aware of it all so i just think it's quite a the more I think about the current system, <laughs> the more I think it's unusual. You know, why wouldn't you have all of those people taking part in all of the decisions? And you know, even if you don't move to this new system, why not have all of your senior management team as closely engaged in the whole governance and management meeting so that you can see how the whole fits together so that all can participate and all can feel that they are driving the whole organisation forward in a coordinated way. I suppose one negative or one one challenge might be the if if in the current system there is a you know the trustees are making decisions especially in light of a recent pandemic where so many charities have had to reduce their staff, whether there's any conflicts of interest on a board where the, 
the executive who are being paid uh, sitting with uh, unpaid um, and stuff and looking at, you know, making cuts to an organization, you know, would, would that be a, any kind of conflict of interest if, if they were sat on the, on the board making those decisions, do you think? Yes, uh, but I asked the question, why is that different from a commercial company? Right. Exactly the same situation arises where the, the paid executive of a commercial company has to consider a redundancy program. Mm. You know, the fact that they are charity trustees makes no, m- makes no difference to the principle of managing conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. Those, those conflicts within um, commercial companies can be authorised by, by the membership within charity companies. Um, you, you would need to have a means of, 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 of doing that. But that would be a function of the, um, or could be a function of the assurance board. You know, if, if this type of uh, system were to be, would it be, would it have to be tabled by the charity commission? What would be the process for, for creating this as an option for, for larger mm. charities to potentially adopt? Well, look, the wonderful thing about English law is it's amazingly flexible. And um, if you wanted to set this, a charity up in this form, uh, it could be done. Um, no one has yet instructed me to do it, but if they did, I could do it. And the Charity Commission would register it. It would have lots of questions, mm. but there's nothing about this proposal that contradicts charity law, and uh, provided that it was actually pursuing charitable purposes for the public benefit, um, the Charity Commission would have to register a charity established with this structure. It's different if you have an, if you have an existing charity that wants to change to this structure because the, no existing charity is likely to have a power to pay a majority of its board to be trustees or to have a majority of its board or even all of its board um, or to pay um, or to have on as a majority on its board the executive there are powers in the charities act 2011 to to make some payments to 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 trustees mm. but that specifically excludes the power to be an employee on the board and it specifically excludes the power to pay to be a trustee so you would need charity commission consent to move from an existing charity structure to this one um, and that would need you to demonstrate to the charity commission that it was overall in the interests of the charity to do so and that you had managed uh, conflicts effectively and that you had addressed the uh, the private benefit that would be derived by the new trustees appropriately. Uh, and I think that could be done, but I haven't engaged in that, that discussion with the Charity Commission because it would, it would need a real charity and a real set of facts. Mm. But in principle, uh, there, there could be a rationale for the Charity Commission agreeing to the change. And if it didn't agree to the change, um, a new charity could be uh, established, but um, that could be an expensive way of dealing with it. Generally, in the world at the moment, we're recording this in uh, in March 2021. We've we're still in the middle of a, a pandemic and and the terrible, terrible things that are happening. And yet, at the same time, there seems to be some sense of progression. Um, kind of hoping to come out of the gate of this pandemic and, and make big changes. America have just the American government have just um, de- declared a, a huge investment in society in terms of monies and and i know that charities are, are now reaching for 
uh, new possibilities in terms of how they develop society and, and help society. Mm. So maybe this is the time. Maybe maybe charities now are part of these conversations that are being had around you know what can we do differently? How can our governance change? And how can we be be stronger and better mm. moving forward? Do you get any sense of that, Philip, from your your <laughs> conversations? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I think charities have always been at the heart of those conversations about how to make society better. Mm. Um, and in, in terms of what, what what charities do now and how much they're needed now, uh, you know, the campaign Never More Needed um, mm. has probably been never more needed. Absolutely. Uh, charities have the ability to be transformational and to take new ideas to government. And that can be done through... Uh, the, the, the charitable think tanks who are constantly thinking about this sort of thing, whichever part of the political spectrum they find themselves on, but also the charities that deal with particular issues such as poverty, social inclusion, education, health, and so on. They all have a wealth of knowledge and they are all taking proper steps to inform government about their, their views on how things should change. Uh, and yes, I think the charity world could itself change. And everyone is thinking, you know, that the, the phrase on everyone's lips at the moment is build back better, isn't it? Mm, that's and, right. um, so I mean, it, it, it's times like this in history, moments in history like this that enable us to, to, to act on some of the thinking that may already have been taken place or to create some new thinking for what the future holds. And this could be a small part of that. Philip Kirkpatrick, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks very much. A big thank you to Philip Kirkpatrick. We're very grateful to Philip for sharing his insights and expertise with us, drawn from nearly three decades of working with charities of different sizes, including when things may have gone wrong for them and they require his representation. Kids Company is so well documented, especially within the sector, as a cautionary tale. But is the caution about trustee behaviour, or is it the risk that all trustees take on in their roles, and the challenge of the current system which expects more than should be expected from any part-time volunteer? This is all food for thought, and you may well have strong views either way. Surely the course of action that the sector and each charity that contributes to it should take is to ask the question, is our current governance model the right thing for us and those we're here to support? We've spoken before on the podcast many times about equality, diversity and inclusion within the sector. And this also relies on having leaders of charities, whether they be trustees or directors, that themselves are diverse and inclusive. One possible ramification of a change of charity governance systems, whether this is the assured unitary governance model that Philip was talking about or something else, is that it could potentially unknot the combination of privilege and power in the sector to bring EDI into the evolution of the sector more quickly. Sharing the responsibility that each charity board has among paid executive directors as well as non-executive unpaid trustee volunteers as is currently the case could both rapidly train up staff on how to govern while encouraging those with perhaps more experience to take on a trustee role. The truth is we don't know whether assured unitary governance would work better than any current model but with a charity commission which seems to be increasingly and unreasonably at odds 
with the philosophy and understanding that many charities have, and with an unprecedented need for charities to bridge the gap of societal inequalities and injustices, as well as the climate catastrophe, now is the time for systemic changes to happen. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. Please do get in touch with us through our website, charitychat.org.uk, or find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People, for enabling us to share insights, expertise and best practice across our sector. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for our beautiful website, check it out at charitychat.org.uk. Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Cheerio. Bye-bye.